0: Hello and welcome to Lakes Chat. I'm your host, Jennifer Kadik, with the Alliance for the Great Lakes. Standard Rock Lighthouse in Lake Superior sits on a submerged rock reef 24 miles from shore and experiences the full force of Lake Superior's legendary weather. Completed in 1882, the light was once manned 24-7 by lightkeepers during the shipping season. Some have called Standard Rock the loneliest place on earth. Today, the Superior Watershed Partnership, a nonprofit organization that took ownership of the light in 2015, is envisioning a new future for the lighthouse as a climate research hub in the middle of the world's largest freshwater lake. On today's episode, we're chatting with two experts, Fred Stonehouse, who is a maritime historian, author, and lecturer. He's the author of over 30 books on maritime history, many focusing on the Great Lakes. And Carl Lundquist, who is the founder and executive director of the Superior Watershed Partnership and Land Conservancy, a local nonprofit working on the Upper Peninsula dedicated to helping local communities adapt to climate change. Welcome, Carl and Fred. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's great to be here.
0: So I'm really excited to chat with you about Standard Rock Lighthouse. Um, The more research I did on it, the more excited I got about it. So Fred, let's start with you by setting the stage. Explain for our listeners where Standard Rock
2: is. Well, Standard Rock is 42 miles dead north of Marquette and roughly in what you could iconically call the center middle of Lake Superior. And it is just an incredible place to be. But its reason it's there is a shipping lane, because the shipping lane from Whitefish Bay at the extreme east end of Lake Superior, running on up to the Duluth the and Superior Harbors, just goes a few miles off of this rock. And when this rock was discovered back in 1835, it became a wow moment, because the navigators on the lake realized the extra, extraordinary amount of danger it presented.
0: And so, you know, I find myself, you know, as I was researching this, I find myself running out of words to describe just how remote this area is. So give us a picture of what the lighthouse looks like and what it takes to get there out in the middle of Lake Superior.
2: Well, maybe the best description of the lighthouse is to imagine yourself in the middle of a science fiction novel where you have, you're you're proceeding down this, this pelagic lake, and then out of nothing rises this lighthouse, 110 foot tall, this castle coming from the from the bottom of the lake, this ice water castle, you could almost call it. It is awe-inspiring. And to be out there in the fog when you know it's there somewhere and you can't find it, uh, before the days of radar and all of the navigation we have today certainly makes that uh impact on you all the all the better or all the worse, depending on how you want to look at it. I would just add that, to
1: me, it it reminds me of something like the, the Greeks or the Romans built.
2: Fred, how big are some of the stones in that structure, or how many tons? Well, some of them are 30 tons, and the walls of that lighthouse are three as three, are seven and a half feet thick. It was built literally as a bastion against the worst waves and the worst weather conditions that the big lake could throw at her. And they built her well. She's still there today. And what I think is
0: so interesting about it is, you know, a lot of times when you think of a lighthouse, it's on an island. So at least even though you might be out in the middle of nowhere, you could like get out and walk around. But this really is just the lighthouse with like a little ledge. I mean, somewhat narrow ledge around it enough to get off your boat and onto the lighthouse, right? There's not, it's, it's really not on any land. It's just sticking out there by itself.
2: There's not much there, there when you're there. (laughs) 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 Yeah. And the reason for that, of course, obviously, they wanted the smallest signature they had to present against the lake and still, still be able to perform the mission. But historically, it was a stag station. In other words, women were never stationed there. Families were never stationed there. Strictly was four lighthouse keepers on rotation that put limited periods of duty there before they were evac'd back to the mainland and switched out again some of them did make it uh one of the fellas story goes back in the 50s was taken off the lighthouse in a straight jacket uh, mm-hmm. he had gone just over the edge based on the isolation
0: yeah and how long does it so 24 miles i think to oh, those of us you know just bopping around in our cars doesn't seem like all that far but when you're on a boat in difficult weather on lake superior how long does it take to get out there like it's a it's a voyage just to get to the lighthouse
2: it is indeed. And the reason I said 42 miles out of Marquette as the as really the registration point is most of the service workers and most of the light keepers and all the support for that light came out of Marquette. So they had to make a 42 mile run rather than the 24 mile run just off the Keweenaw. But most of the boats that would go back out and shuttle supplies back and forth were only 40 foot. So that could be a long 42 miles out and a much longer 42 miles return. Uh, they had one instance where the boat got out to the lighthouse and it was too rough to land the boat, to bring it at the close to the caisson and get people off it. So they ended up spending a day and a half at the end of an anchor line trying to just survive the storm In right up to the lighthouse. They couldn't get there. They couldn't get to the safety of the light. They were caught within their own boat until the waves got low enough that they could lower the the davits and get the boat back up to safety.
1: I'll give you a a quick modern example. Uh, I went out there once with the Coast Guard uh, on their state-of-the-art jet boat, and we were out there. It was flat conditions. We were out there in just over an hour, then they got called off to an emergency. And we had to go back on this huge old buoy tender and it took us six hours to get back. Wow. So I don't know. Fred knows more about boats, but it, a lot of it depends on the weather and the boat you're on nowadays.
0: Yeah. I think that's just so amazing that, you know, that was staffed and and Fred, they had to build the lighthouse on land, right, and, and transport it out there? Like they didn't just build it out in the middle of the lake somehow, right?
2: Understand, this is the most difficult lighthouse build of any in North America. That's how difficult this was considered to be by the lighthouse service back when they started building it in 1877. So they literally practiced on a lighthouse down in Lake Huron, Spectacle Reef, to make sure they could do it. And then the big one, when they did Lake Superior, the, the, the standard rock light, they actually built it on land at a little place they called Standardville. It had some little humor to it, but had all of the blocks, all of the quarried rock that came out of Lake Erie, brought it up and reassembled this lighthouse as, as if it were a bunch of Lego blocks, putting it together carefully on land until they got to the point that they were sure they, that it all fit together. They labeled each of the blocks very carefully, drew the plans up. So when they went out to the light, they could build it on site knowing it would fit together and they wouldn't have to modify anything. That said, it still took them five years to build it three years on site and 40% of the work effort on site was wasted time because they had to repair stuff that had been damaged that winter. Hmm. So you were kind of taking a step ahead and half a step back every, every time you went out.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, I know the, the, the light isn't manned or staffed, uh, anymore full time it's now an automated light so when did they make that shif- shift to an unmanned light and I know there was a, a disaster out there an explosion or something that um, really that hurt some people um, it sounds like it was a, a, a not a great end to the the era of staffing that in person
2: yeah in uh, June of 1961 they had a gas generator explosion on the light. Uh, to the side of the tower proper, they had a generator building uh, that fueled, rather, provided electric power for the lighthouse as well as for the big foghorns. And one of the gas engines was disassembled, and the quarters it was in, the space it was in, was very confining. So the belief is that the fumes from that gasoline engine, along with the thousand gallons of gasoline they had at the lighthouse stored, uh, mm-hmm. was set off inadvertently by the actions of one of the lightkeepers. Uh, Three men were on the tower at the time, two of them were blown right out of their bunks and injured, and the other one simply disappeared. They never did find whatever happened to him uh, in the explosion. And then it was about two and a half days before the Coast Guard realized that the light's not on. What's happening? These guys aren't making radio checks and was able to get a cutter out to, to rescue them. And it was at that point that they shifted the light over to being automated.
0: Yeah. It, just a reminder that, you know, these uh, lights were critical for safety for all those ships going through, but also this was really dangerous, difficult work
2: for sure. Well, it certainly is at the isolated stations like, uh, like standards. Um, it, was, it was tough duty in a way. Uh, and we mentioned the isolation, but one fella thrived on it and spent 99 consecutive days on the lighthouse. Uh, 99 days. And he he just enjoyed that light. He enjoyed being there. And it was a personality that fit perfectly with what his job was.
0: That's a remarkable person.
2: (laughs) But you really can't overstate the importance of this light to Lake Superior. Today, we bring about 70 percent of our iron ore for North America right past that lighthouse coming down from the Minnesota mines. During World War II, we were bringing about 95% of everything we used in North North America right down past that light. And even when it was built in the 1880s and finally fired up in 1882, it was all of, most of, generally, 80% at least of the Mm -hmm. iron ore supplies for North America coming past that lighthouse. And that was critical. uh, So that the value of that light was well known by all the mariners.
0: Yeah. That's an incredible history. Um, and I know, Carl, your organization, the uh, Superior Watershed Partnership, is um, now uh, manages or owns the lighthouse. But tell us first a little bit about Superior Watershed Partnership and
1: what you do. Well, we're a, a Great Lakes nonprofit, first and foremost, but uh, we work throughout the Upper Peninsula. So, and the Upper Peninsula is Uh, orders three Great Lakes. So Lake Superior, Lake Michigan and Lake Huron. So we work in all three watersheds. A lot of work is community work, but we also do a lot of uh, other projects uh, throughout the UP. Um, And a lot more and more with climate change and climate adaptation. And that's one of the reasons we acquired the lighthouse from the federal government. And we do own it. So would you like yeah. me to talk more about that? Uh,
0: yeah, yeah. You know, so, I, you know, in addition to being, you know, this really important aid to navigation, right, you know, I know that the it's always been a, or at least in recent times, has been a home to other data collection by NOAA and weather agencies and so on. And so tell us a little bit about that and what your vision is for the Lighthouse as a climate research
1: station. Right. So, you know. The federal government, uh, I don't know when that started, maybe Fred does 20 some years ago, started getting rid of a lot of lighthouses around the country just because of the the cost of maintaining them, I think was one of the main drivers. Uh, So when that opportunity came up for Standard Rock, we uh, uh, jumped on it and were successful working with, uh, it's actually administered through the National Park Service. But, So when we took ownership, um, we were already working with most of the partners that were interested in the light, such as NOAA and Environment Canada, um, and then several universities. And what we're doing is trying to raise funding, not only for historic renovations, but also to improve the station for research. And uh, it's, you know, It's kind of a spooky place to go right now, kind of damp and cold as Fred says, it never gets warm in that building. Um, And um, anyway, uh, there's a lot of work to be done. We have uh, monitoring equipment out there as well. And um, we use the data for a lot of different things. Uh, We have developed several regional climate adaptation plans for coastal communities. And I guess, one of the main things to know about what the why that site is so important for climate research is is its remoteness. Um, it is not influenced by, um, you know, land masses or or urban areas or um, a lot of the um, uh, factors that can skew monitoring data. And one of the most important things. Uh, that's being monitored out there is evaporation rates but there's a whole host of other things um you know water temperatures wave uh wave action ice formation um and i could go on but i've been told that it's improved weather forecasting in both the u.s and canada uh, the data that comes from there that's especially true um The National Weather Service, local office has said that, but also um, in regards to lake effect uh, uh, Mm -hmm. snow events, which we get a lot of up here, it helps predict those events. But tying it back to climate change, I'm I'm sure you're well aware of how suddenly the lake levels came up Mm -hmm. starting around 2013, 14. And uh, record high lake levels the record rate uh, that they rose that a lot of that was attributed to evaporation being essentially shut down that was also a cold winter and it was the last time lake superior froze over almost entirely so that led that was a factor in the lake level rise which had serious repercussions for communities Mm -hmm. So anyway, it's just an example of how important that data can be from there. I do have one interesting note, uh, you know, so at the federal level, it's, it's NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And we have a number of grants through them and other projects we do with them separate from the lighthouse. But it's been fun working with Canadian researchers and Environment Canada. We've been involved in some binational efforts in the past, but once we got the light, It really strengthened that relationship. And when we got the light, um, we got this letter. Uh, I'll just read the beginning. It's from Environment Canada, and it starts out. It's kind of timely. This was sent in 2016, though. Her Majesty the Queen, in right of Canada, as represented herein by the Minister of the Environment, blah, 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 wishes to obtain use of said premises standard rock lighthouse so of course we granted it to the queen but uh and that's a wonderful relationship and the fact that we can use that data in our planning is really important to us
0: yeah you know and this issue of data and the lack of sort of mid-lake data stations came up on a podcast we did earlier this season with Ed who you might know but he's working on a um uh, building a network of data buoys sm- much obviously much smaller to collect that kind of data and use it for you know weather forecasting they also do some water quality testing in lake erie using those buoys but i was shocked to learn from him and you might know more about this but how few yeah. data collection buoys or lighthouses or whatnot are actually out in the middle of the lakes you know, to really understand those conditions of what's happening out in the middle of these big lakes. That was a a, sort of a light bulb moment for me that we, in some ways, we don't always know what's happening in the middle of these lakes, you know, in real time.
1: And you don't realize how important that data can be. On that note, we do have three of those same small uh, monitoring buoys that are funded through GLOSS, Great Lakes Mm -hmm. Observing Systems. and uh we move those around mainly they're on the south shore from marquette over to grand maray i wanted to mention uh, the storm during the record high lake levels 2017 here in marquette well it was a lake-wide storm but the buoy off of marquette we recorded 28-foot waves which is uh To my understanding, I've been told it's a record as far as documented wave height. There are Mm -hmm. legends and stories of higher waves, but as far as a a buoy recording it and documenting it,
2: so that gives you an idea
1: how big the waves get. And then I mentioned the universities. We work with uh, Michigan Technological University, Northern Michigan University, and actually the University of Saskatchewan in Canada. There's some researchers that utilize it, Um, but... uh, We sometimes rotate buoys, and Tech has a buoy. Michigan Tech has a buoy out there currently. And uh, we also have some of our data that's going to be available through our website soon. We have a webcam out there that's pretty cool to watch during storm events, and we're going to have that link to our website soon.
0: That's really cool, Carl. Um, We'll have to, I'll look out for that link. Um, It's it's just fascinating. You know, and I know you're doing a lot of work with youth um, through the Great Lakes Climate Corps, I think is what you call it. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's a connection to the lighthouse and out there. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that program?
1: Yeah, we're really, uh, that's one of our favorite programs. Um, And it's uh, actually young adults, uh, 18 to 25. Most of them are college students or recent graduates. This summer we had 40 uh, seasonal uh, employees through the we call it our Great Lakes Climate Corps, and they do a wide variety of projects across the Upper Peninsula. But once, uh, at least once or twice a summer, we get them a crew eight. As each crew is is four, it's uh, two guys, two gals. They're issued a truck and tools, and so we had 10 crews this summer, but we get one crew out there at least uh, once or twice a summer to continue the uh, gargantuan task of maintaining and uh, renovating that light. And um, I could go on and on about the Great Lakes Climate Corps, but it seems to be a good segue to talk about how much money is needed to renovate that light, his- both from a historic perspective and uh, for the Climate Research Station.
0: Yeah, and so I'd love to hear from both of you what you envision for the future of the Lighthouse. I know you're both really involved in fundraising efforts and others to make sure we can restore and maintain that facility, which has got to be a gargantuan task in itself, but then also, you know, really build out this idea of a climate research station. So what what do you envision for the future and what are your hopes for, the, for Standard Rock and Standard Red? I'll
1: let Fred go first, maybe from a historical
2: perspective. Well, I, I think my hope, uh, what seems to be coming true, is the very concept that we're able to take a piece of history, a piece of a critical piece of maritime history that's been there for over a century and a half now, and segue that into the relevance it will have in the 21st century and beyond. So we're taking the historic past and we're building on that to make it part of our future. And that I find to be a remarkable achievement and I I really commend the the, the folks at the Watershed Foundation because they have the vision for this and they're making it work. Well, thanks, Fred.
1: And I guess I would add that that is, it's gonna be, we need people like Fred to help us do this because it is on the National Register of Historic Places. And so there are uh, very strict national Guidelines on any renovations to historic structures like that, and maintaining accuracy and and so on. So, some of these modern upgrades to turn it into a state-of-the-art climate research station for the U.S. and um, Canada—you know—we'll have to be working with both state historic offices and federal. And we're so far. Every indication is they're they're excited about this, and uh, it's going to be a fun project um so we're looking forward to it but i mean um every year like we recently went out and did a small window repair um and sometimes we'll have to contract for that but the major renovation we have a a document about two inches thick uh approved from the state historic preservation office for a complete restoration of that lighthouse and the The estimate is about $2 million. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's a lot of money, Um, but uh, that doesn't scare us. Uh, But what I will say is, we found, even though we raise millions of dollars every year uh, through this office with grant writing, but we found that there are not many grants for lighthouses. Uh, for historic renovation in general, but for lighthouses specifically. And I think, and Fred may know more, when the federal government decided to get rid of most of their lighthouses, and what is it? We have, uh, I believe, over a thousand in North America, over 200 on the Great Lakes, and over 50 on Lake Superior. And When the the U.S. government decided to, to get rid of most of the lighthouses since they were automated and other reasons or weren't needed some of them this one as fred mentioned is still needed for navigation um i think the feds may have decided well if we're getting rid of them we're not going to develop a grant program to help maintain them and they haven't uh so there are some state grants but they're they're pretty small and there are some private foundations we've we've gotten one grant through the americana foundation i wanted to give a nod
2: to them, but I don't know, Fred, do
1: you have anything to say about that?
2: Um, actually maybe some good news. My understanding back channel is that National Maritime Initiative will be funded this year and they're funding it out through about 5 million. I think uh, maritime initiative is funded through the sale of obsolete vessels in the federal mm-hmm. state, and yeah. that the salvage cost for that goes into the bucket. Uh, Carl, I can send you a little bit of data on it, I have, but it's just National Maritime Initiative funding, and they're directed at doing it against maritime projects, which obviously this would uniquely fit into.
1: Thanks. And, And I'm hopeful, we're looking at in the climate, you know, there's a lot of new funding coming into the climate arena, and we're hoping we can make the right connections there to do both climate research and some building upgrades. Um, so we're, we're, we're very optimistic. Um, but at the same time, I wanted to mention on the podcast that we're looking for creative ideas, too. So, you know, we have a GoFundMe site, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really interested in uh, contractors or corporations, industry, you know, that might have the skill set, whether it's uh, construction or solar or whatever. There's a, so many things that Lighthouse needs. Um, that they might be interested in helping to adopt it, especially not just for the historic importance, but also for the climate importance and how that benefits communities all around the Great Lakes.
0: Yeah, certainly. Even though this is such a localized spot, you know, it seems to me the data and information and just the historic nature of this would be of interest to the region, um, and that data and information is critical for understanding, you know, climate change on the lakes, which is sadly happening now. You know, we think of it as something as far off happening to polar bears somewhere, but uh, as you've noted, Carl, it's, it's impacting the lakes right
2: now. Right. Well, we, but we see it as local. But in the real world, this is the largest freshwater lake by surface area in the entire world. Mm -hmm. This is it. This is the the great mama here. And Mm -hmm. if we can't get this one taken care of, at least in terms of providing an asset that will help us segue into the future, we're lost. Mm -hmm. So this one is unique among any of the others. I mean, if you'd want to take Lake Michigan and pull the plug and let it go, it would let her go. They'll get they'll get well listen, I mean, folks down in that area get a little angry about it, but the point in fact is we'll fill it up again with Lake Superior in a couple of years anyway, once the drainage goes.
1: Uh, remember, Fred, the alliance. People, it, right? <laughs> their main office is on Lake Michigan. So uh, <laughs> Well that's Chicago. But we all have that there
0: week. We do. I love the um the regional uh, the, uh, rivalries within the Great Lakes, you know, at the Alliance, we tend to think of them as one big system, you know, and certainly all the lakes are connected, but those local um, personalities and perspectives, I think are, you know, imp- a really important part of the culture of our region. And and I love those rivalries. That's great.
2: <laughs> I, got just, I just got done doing a short cruise from Montreal to uh, Boston. I do some work on small uh, cruise ships and... You know, those people on the St. Lawrence River really think that they're the beginning of life. They they have no clue what's upstream. They have no clue where it comes from. Well, Fred, I would argue that the
0: the opposite of that. You know, as I mentioned, I live um, on the St. Lawrence River, right right where Lake Ontario flows in the river. But it's the opposite. You know, folks on the Upper Lakes don't realize that the lakes flow together and ultimately go out to the ocean. So, uh, you know, yeah. We all all think our spot's the best, of course. (laughs) Well, Carl and Fred, this has been uh, a delight talking to both of you and learning more about Standard Rock. Um, You know, are there any last words that either of you would want to say about, you know, the importance of protecting this amazing place and uh, building, you know, this new climate data research station?
2: Again, I'll let Fred go first. I guess I would just say, if we don't know where we were, we don't know where we are, and we certainly have no clue where we're going. And I think standard rock is a good example of that because we have to understand the history to understand how we got where we are. And, but using those, we can, again, begin to work towards the future of using the rock entirely for a different purpose. And really for the same purpose in theory, and if you want to get parceling, serving mankind through navigation assets versus serving mankind through uh, the improved climatation that we can work with in weather forecasting, et cetera, the environment is really the same issue, just different ends perhaps of the same spectrum.
1: Right. I I like that in that you know, not just Lake Superior, but all the Great Lakes. Um, It's a a joint responsibility to maintain them. And and this is the a great opportunity to work with our Canadian partners and to provide the best information we can to local units of government, state government, federal government and and the the tribes that we work with um, on climate adaptation and climate resiliency. As you mentioned earlier, we're, we're seeing a lot of different impacts from climate change already some of them directly climate related and some of them indirectly, like the influx of climate refugees, people moving here because we all know the Great Lakes are one of the best places to live when you project forward in in this country. And so for so many reasons, uh, maintaining that light and and having the best available climate data to do the best climate planning and help communities uh, it it just makes sense. So we're excited.
0: Yeah. Well, this is great. Thank you so much, Carl and Fred. And for our listeners, we'll put up some links to the Standard Rock uh, light fundraising page and the GoFundMe um, and some more information about the history and current work on that site um, on our website, greatlakes.org slash lakes chat. And again, thanks so much, Carl and Fred. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today.
2: Well, thank you. Thanks, Jennifer.
0: Thank you for listening. On our website, greatlakes.org slash lakes you'll find links to more information about the topics that we talked about today. And you can also sign up for updates to stay in the know about Great Lakes issues and opportunities to get involved. Special thank you to my colleague, Michelle Farley, who produces this podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you'll know when the next episode drops. Talk to you next week.